Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ted Love. Ted is the president and CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, or GBT for short. The company is based in South San Francisco. GBT is focused on sickle cell disease, which affects about 100,000 people in the U.S., the vast majority of whom are black. About 20 million are thought to be affected worldwide. It's a huge source of pain and suffering. GBT's drug is a major milestone in biotech, as it's the first ever innovative disease-modifying drug purposely developed for sickle cell disease. GBT secured FDA approval last November and is now in the early days of marketing. It's a significant contribution to human health and well-being, which is what biotech is about at its best. A few months before that landmark approval, Ted was a guest on The Long Run. You can hear there about his upbringing in Alabama, his career path in biotech, and quite a bit about sickle cell and GBT's drug. One of the things that I admire about Ted is that he's gotten himself in a position where so many important things are aligned in his life. He's an African-American. He's a physician. He's an experienced drug developer and company leader. And he found a way to combine all of his life experience and values with his professional skills and apply them all toward a huge and urgent healthcare need specifically for African-Americans. Ted is someone who thinks long and hard about science and society and the interconnectedness of our communities. I'm thankful to have him on the show today to share his wisdom on race. This is just one conversation of many we need to have over time. I intend to bring future guests on this show to have constructive conversations. And to that end, if you're looking for places to donate, one specific group Ted said he supports is the Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit based in Montgomery, Alabama. Brian Stevenson, a prominent public interest lawyer and author of Just Mercy, founded and leads this group. I'm including a link in the show notes on Timmerman Report for those who would like to contribute. Now, please join me and Ted Love on The Long Run. Ted Love, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Ted, um, first thing I want to ask you is uh, what went through your mind when you saw that video of um, George Floyd uh, and his encounter with the police? Well, I think I'm like most Americans. Uh, I was you know, very angry. Um, I was very shocked. Um, I was particularly struck uh, by how um, he continued uh, to uh, suffocate George Floyd when <clears throat> people were yelling at him um, and, and when he was begging. And I was also struck that the other police were actually uh, preventing anyone from intervening uh, uh, to allow uh, this to continue. So it, it was, it, it's very emotional. I mean, and I, I have thought to myself, you know, in this country, we would be very upset if this were done, you know, to a dog, to an animal. Uh, and um, we watched it being done to another human being for, for no reason, there's no explanation for why we would ever do this to another human being. People would definitely be outraged to see that happen to an animal. <laughs> um, and I, it, it just shocked, shocked the conscience of 
so many people to, to see it uh, so, so graphically. I, I wondered, Ted, you know, as an African-American, you know, you, you were on my show last summer and we talked about your life journey and we talked about segregation and, and some discrimination that you encountered. But you know, we didn't talk about this stuff, this systemic type racism and the b- police brutality that goes with it. Um, have, has this conjured up some thoughts in, in from your past, your life? Like, have you had encounters with the police or, or members of your family that that have that you've been wrestling with these last couple of weeks? Well, I, I, I'll say you you really can't be uh, certainly a black man and not have some uh, awkward encounters uh, with the police. Uh, having said that, I've had some very good encounters uh, with the police as well, but uh, uh, the bad encounters I've had have all been, uh, at least in my view, based upon my race. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to list a few of them, but uh, I could start with my uh, one of my older brothers uh, who told me a story just a few days ago that uh, I didn't remember and that is that he and my mom uh, were driving in Huntsville, Alabama, and the police uh, pulled them over, and um, they arrested him, took him out of the car. And my mom was <clears throat> very upset and uh, began to uh, verbally engage the, the policeman. And my brother was smart. He, he said to her, you know, stop. Uh, he has the right to do this. Um, and uh, I'll deal with it. So they actually took him to the police station. And um, once they got to the police station, um, it became very apparent that they were looking for a different Charles Love. They weren't looking for my brother in the beginning. Um, but 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 that's. Uh, uh, but my mom was fra- afraid, and and he was afraid. Um, <clears throat> and had they reacted differently? Uh, I think the potential for that to have escalated into something that was harmful uh, to my father, to my brother, or to my mother uh, is extraordinary. And and unfortunately, this is, you know, the human experience. I was picked up uh, on the street when I was, uh, actually, I was not picked up on the street. I was was, uh, picked up from my apartment uh, when I was a medical student in New Haven. And the Police actually saw me going into my building. They pulled up. I didn't stop because I certainly had no reason to think that the police were speeding to my apartment, uh, having anything to do with me. So I went upstairs to get some materials. I actually left the apartment uh, door ajar because I was turning around to go to a study section at the medical school. And they were knocking on all the doors. And when I got to the door, there was a big policeman there standing at the door. And he didn't even acknowledge me when I opened the door. He simply said, he's here. And, uh, um, and, and, and the other policeman came over and was, was, was nicer and explained that there had been a purse snatching on, on Chapel Street and uh, uh, in, 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 in they wanted me to stand in a lined up. Um, and, and the woman whose uh, purse was snatched was in the car, so he wanted me to stand up there and be viewed by her. And and I was concerned about doing this, of course, uh, but I thought, oh, this is great. I, my my height, my short height is going to come to my my salvation here. So I went down with them, <clears throat> and um, 
uh, and I could see the woman wave her hand as in have him turn around. So I was then concerned that you know, they were actually going to take me to jail. It turned out she uh, described to them that she did not think I was the first snatcher. Uh, by the way, the only explanation uh, description that I had met uh, that made them pursue me this way is that it was a black man that had snatched, uh, snatched her purse um, wearing a red jacket. And um, I was a black man wearing a red jacket. Okay, just just real quick there, Ted. Um, why did you think the short size? And first of all, how tall are you? I'm about five six, so I'm a little bit less than average. So I was thinking that it's an average person in height, and maybe that would uh, get me off uh, the hook pretty readily. But she seriously considered me, obviously, for a while. Okay, but th- I'm guessing this is something you probably haven't thought about in a long time. <laughs> uh, but have you had you've had some conversations it sounds like with your family and i would imagine of course your employees what have those conversations been like well i'll come back to the conversation but i do want to say i I think about that a lot um uh that those kinds of interactions don't leave you uh so uh, i have uh, thought about that many many times and i've thought about it recently even before george floyd and certainly after um in terms of uh, our employees, um, one of the things that we felt was important to do after uh, uh, this uh, discussion of George Floyd and, and race in our country uh, became so central, we thought it was important to bring our employees together and talk about it. And we had an incredible meeting, I think, where um, uh, the raw emotions of what we were all feeling um, uh, uh, the emotions about the urgency uh, that is uh, uh, appropriate to be dealing with this uh, and moving forward. People were already trying to figure out how they could volunteer and how they could take a stand to move things forward. So we um, have very quickly uh, really come together, much like a family, uh, to talk about what we're feeling, uh, to support each other, but also to kick into action and to make sure that we are doing our parts as individuals and also as a company, uh, as a corporate citizen, uh, to, to be advancing this session. This is unacceptable. This 400 years of injustice, it's, it's really got to end. And, and, and we all want to be a part of the solution. And we're going to fight against anybody that wants to block the solution. Yeah, 400 years. That's a long time to wait for justice. Um, it's really interesting to see people immediately spring to action. You know, in the past, of course, you know, there have been, oh, calls for statements, Is- issue a statement or press release and, or, or, you know, those times seem to have passed now. People immediately want to know, what can I do? Uh, what can I do as an individual? What can I do as a company? Um, how are you thinking about those things in terms of actions that, that actually matter? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that, that, that we have so many people around this nation, and in fact, around the world, that uh, uh, have decided enough is enough. Um, um, but this is not new, um, and I don't think we can be complacent. Um, you know, one of the things I've encouraged a lot of people to do is to go back and read um, the letter from Birmingham Jail written by Martin Luther King. Um, and if you read that letter, uh, you will be shocked at how relevant it is uh, today. And uh, just to set the stage, that letter was written um, 
uh, not only because Martin Luther King was in jail uh, for uh, exercising his right to peacefully protest discrimination in this country, he was in jail. Um, uh, he was writing the letter because he was written by four white clergymen who essentially said, uh, we don't want you here in Alabama. Um, you uh, bring uh, unrest uh, uh, to our state. So we're really saying don't exercise your, uh, your legal right uh, to peacefully uh, protest and challenge. So people have, uh, uh, have always deflected the issue. Colin Kaepernick uh, was trying to tell America, we have a real problem of police violence in this country, particularly directed toward people of color, particularly men. And we totally shut the man down. Uh, very similar to what we tried to do to Martin Luther King, very similar to what Muhammad Ali experienced. Um, but we can't do that. We, we've got to deal with the message rather than more conveniently deny the message and say the message is something else. The message has always been about 400 years of racial injustice is too much. As, as Martin Luther King said, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah, so you're encouraging people to do some reading on King, educate themselves. Um, what else? What other kinds of steps? Um, you mentioned volunteering that your employees showed some interest in. Um, what other kinds of things are, are are you seeing happen? Well, I've always said uh, two things. If you really want to know what a person stands for, you watch uh, what they do and where they put their money. Um, those things say a lot about people. So we have, as a company and as individuals, committed to supporting organizations around the country that are trying to unwind uh, and deal with uh, the injustices that are being promulgated by the current infrastructure in our country. Um, so we gave $150,000 to the Equal Justice Institute. Um, if people don't know what that is, they should really uh, read about it. It's run by a phenomenal uh, civil rights lawyer, Brian Stevenson, a Harvard-educated guy who could be making enormous amounts of money practicing law, but he runs this institute which is focused on the uh, inappropriate incarceration of, of African-Americans in this country. It's, it's a rampant problem, so we, are giving money uh, to Brian's organization, uh, which has been featured in many venues around the world for its outstanding uh, work and tireless work. So that's one thing that we've done. We're gonna do more. Um, uh, we are volunteering. We expect our, our employees to be volunteers. So this is the do part. So uh, I'm encouraging people, if you wanna be part of a peaceful protest, please do it. We support that. If you wanna support people, um, who are doing it in various ways, please do so. But we can also take a role around mentoring uh, young kids that are being discriminated against, kids that have really, quite frankly, less of a shot in life from the moment they come out of the womb. Uh, uh, so we are encouraging people to put their money uh, uh, where their mouth is and to put their actions where their mouth is. And the volunteering strikes me as really important too, because people in this industry are working on such amazing things. And there are so many kids out there that just don't get exposed to it. 
They have no idea. They have no idea what's going on. And the, but the minute they find out about it, I mean, I've been around kids like this, their eyes light up. Um, you can see <laughs> the, the effect that an individual can have. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I, I've done a fair amount of volunteering for things over the years. And uh, one of my uh, uh, mentees that I've been mentoring probably since he was about 14 or 15, uh, he's probably about 35 now, um, we still have a very active dialogue, text each other constantly. Um, you know, he's a young Mexican kid. Uh, here in San Francisco, whose parents um, um, uh, uh, are, are, are probably in some vernacular illegal aliens. And it's, it's a very challenging life for him. And being around someone that inspires him that he can do what he wants to do, he can really do what he commits to do, um, has been extraordinary for him. And, and, and quite frankly, it, it hasn't, it, it didn't cost me lots and lots of money. It didn't distract me from doing my job, but it has had a very big impact on one person's life. If all of us did that, think about the impact on the nation. If we all were focused on just helping one individual. You know, hearing you describe that, it reminds me of the video, uh, the interview that Ken Frazier did on CNBC about a week ago. Did you happen to see this? I did. It was an extraordinary interview. And I think Ken uh, said it well. He said that could have been me because all of us know that it could have been us very easily um, based on the interactions that we've had uh, with particular police. But so it could have been him in that video, but his life went on a different trajectory, as he said. And it had a lot to do with someone extending him a helping hand, helping him get into a rigorous school, as he said. Um, and, and you know, I, I just, you know, he said there were nine kids, nine African-American kids in a class of 1,400. Um, yeah. um, you know, that's the kind of thing, like that's just one caring individual or, or maybe a small group that, that organized that kind of thing. And, you know, look, look where it led for him. Uh, well, and I think people underestimate that. Um, and another point I, I really would want to make, um, I don't know if Ken made this one or, or not, but <clears throat> many, uh, it, actually almost every mentor, I think every mentor I've had has been white. I, I've never had a black mentor. It, it's not because I was uh, uh, discriminating against a potential black mentor. It's just that there weren't that many people to pick from. I went to Haverford College, and my first mentor really was my chemistry professor, an extraordinary man. Uh, and he had an enormous uh, impact on my approach to learning, uh, my approach to studying, and ultimately my confidence that I could be academically successful in any environment uh, uh, among any competition. Um, my, my next mentor really was uh, probably at the Mass General. He was head of cardiology, uh, an extraordinary man uh, who just completely gave me the confidence uh, to achieve at the highest levels uh, at uh, arguably um, 
uh, uh, one of the best hospitals uh, in the world, the Mass General. And ultimately, when I went to Genentech, I learned from Dave Stump, who taught me about how to develop drugs. Uh, and then ultimately, I learned how to be a CEO. I learned from George Rathman. So I've always had uh, white mentors uh, who showed me the way. And I'm, I'm enormously grateful because they changed the course of my life. These are great allies. These are people who cared. They saw something in you. And now you're in a position to pass that on. And, and a lot of people at your company are too. Um, and this is this can be a a, circ, a, a self-perpetuating kind of thing if, if enough of us do it, if enough of us care. Well, it's gonna it's it's gonna be key to changing the world uh, 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 because we have engineered uh, a society uh, that we need to disengineer. But while we are uh, still in this, we need to reach out. Uh, to people uh, who are really disadvantaged uh, uh, and they're disadvantaged in, in, in ways that sometimes we can't fix, but we can at least give them uh, some tips about how we've approached things. We can at least share with them you know, our journey uh, to help them see clarity in what their journey might be. Uh, we can at least do simple things like the young man that I mentor uh, didn't have internet in their home. And I just bought it for them. I bought him a modem and I bought him a computer and I, I bought him a printer. Um, and I said, I'm going to pay for all your, your I'm going to pay your Comcast bill uh, for a year. Um, and if you can take it over after a year, you can take it over. If you can, I'll continue to pay it. And, I don't think I pay his Comcast bills anymore, but he took it over, but it opened up a whole new world for him. And these are just simple acts that at the end of the day don't cost you that much. It's fascinating you mentioned that example, Ted, because we've heard about that in the time of the pandemic, right? Now that so many schools are canceled, uh, you've got, say, you know, high school kids that need to take their exams to get into college, um, but they don't, uh, you know, have internet access at home. And so how are they supposed to do it? And then, you know, we hear these stories about like, you know, callous administrators saying, well, why don't you go to the local McDonald's and log on to their Wi-Fi or something? I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, um, but, but all that said, I mean, you, you referenced the Colin Kaepernick protest and the reaction in this country was so vastly different than what we're seeing now. Uh, people seem to me to be much more open and receptive to the injustice when it's staring them in the face. There's no getting around it. You can't look away. Um, are you are you hopeful? Are you optimistic about what's happening right now? Well, I mean, I, the two things that make me hopeful, you kind of just mentioned, um, uh, and. Um, uh, the one thing that makes me most hopeful is that unlike uh, Martin Luther King, uh, the uh, protesters are different now. Um, uh, I, I don't have an exact number, but I think the majority of protesters are not the, the, the victims of the oppression. That uh, may or may not be true, but, 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 but I do think uh, a huge amount of the protesters now 
uh, are white. Um, so they are part of the oppressing society that's saying this has got to end. And, and that's vital. Um, that wasn't happening at nearly the scale uh, in Martin Luther King's days that's happening today. So that is very hopeful to see the broad range of ages, the broad range of races that are owning this, because this is not a black problem. Black people didn't create this problem and black people don't have the power to fix it. The people that have the power to fix it are not black. And so it's important that we have this broad uh, engagement on this problem needs to be solved and engaging in actually solving it. The other thing that, that I think uh, is important is the cell phone. Um, I, I didn't realize the cell phone would be such um, uh, an important device because black people have been saying this is going on for years, because guess what? This has been going on for years, but the cell phone has allowed this to be recorded and played over. I, I, I suspect there is not a day that goes by that a black person is not killed by a policeman in this country uh, for an inappropriate reason, uh, certainly uh, abused um, uh, uh, inappropriately. And now we're starting to see video evidence. Even the, even the Cooper situation in New York um, uh, was you know, a person of privilege who essentially was willing to call the cops, sick the cops on a man who was simply asking her to protect the park the way the sign said and keep her dog on the But she didn't like it. And so she was willing to call the cops and use uh, incendiary language, like I'm being uh, harassed by a black man. And this is deadly because police show up in those situations with guns drawn if they hear black men are harassing white women. So this is, um, we've got to fix this. And, and I think there is the will broadly now to fix it. And I think the, the, the insult of seeing this in our face is not going to end with the current climate of cell cameras and social media. Yeah, the um, I would agree that the cell phones with the cameras, the shareable video, um, that is the the key enabling technology, <laughs> they'd say, for this social awakening. Um, because before this, people could just say, well, you know, cop says this and the, the suspect says that and could, we're not really there. And uh, maybe or maybe it was just one bad apple cop. You know, we've heard all that before. Right. Um but this, you just can't, this is what I mean by when I said you can't look away. Um, it's, it's injustice staring everybody in the face. Uh, and it also comes at the end of this pandemic too, or not the end, but the middle of it, where a lot of people have, have been forced to stare at some of those disparities in, in jobs, uh, who, who the essential workers are, by and large, and uh, who's taking the risk to keep the society going. And then, oh, yeah. Um, they have to, they're more vulnerable to the health effects for a whole set of systemic reasons. And they've got to put up with this kind of stuff and have been for 400 years. Um, it, it just feels like a moment to me where people, people are, are beginning to listen. I, I'm curious, Ted, are you seeing this? Because you're, you know, with a lot of people maybe who, you know, were not um, listening very carefully, say back in the Kaepernick days. Are, are they listening now? I think they are. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Kaepernick thing is, is, is very funny. And I was talking to my 
uh, uh, my daughter about this. My daughter is a Georgetown lawyer, so she's very good at arguing things and understanding why people win and lose arguments. And she said to me, Ted, she said to me, Dad, um, Colin Kaepernick could not control the narrative. The people who wanted him ignored controlled the narrative. And, and I got it. Um, um, uh, so people who control the narrative were able to pivot everybody from even considering the problem of police violence to disrespecting the fact, disrespecting our troops. Of course, it was never about that. Anybody with a brain that actually listened to Coppin Kaepernick knew that was not it. Anybody that listened to Muhammad Ali knew he wasn't afraid to fight for our country. He wasn't afraid to get to the military. He was trying to say this is an unjust war. Now, the country finally got there, but he was simply ahead of the country. But what did we do to him? We did, we did the same thing we did to Colin Kaepernick. We emasculated, took his career away, and we've got to get beyond that. We've got to make sure, and this, again, is a lot of Birmingham jail. You cannot, uh, you cannot um, uh, vilify uh, the, 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 the people who protest uh, oppression without, without, without dealing with the oppressor. It's, it's repugnant to even think about it. But we've been doing that over and over and over. Yeah, we let the president and the National Football League change the subject. Um, and, and that's not happening now. Um, I find that encouraging. You know, um, one, one, coming back to football, though, and this, I think this is important because, you know, that's a big uh, part of the entertainment enterprise. It, it, it's uh, woven into our culture. Uh, we had this, uh, you know, Drew Brees, you probably saw, uh, made some remarks that were very reminiscent of the, the, uh, how he reacted and, and others did during the first round of Kaepernick protests in 2016-2017 and uh, got a very different reaction this time. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if you happen to see, uh, Tony Dungy, the, do you know, Tony Dungy, the football coach? Oh, yes. Yes, so, you know, he had, and he's also a very religious man and, and he had a very graceful response going on radio and television, which I, I took as, you know, allowing a lot of people some, some wiggle room, some grace, People are going to say some dumb things. Drew apologized. And, and I don't think he, he, he had his blind spots, right? He didn't really understand what, how, how offensive what he said was to so many of his black teammates. Um, Tony was offering him some grace. And I, I thought I just took that to he didn't excuse the bad behavior or, or, or the comments. Uh, he, he condemned them. But he's given Drew a chance to come over to his side. I wonder, is there a lesson there? Like tactically, as people think about having these conversations, like you and I are, are having now, um, where it's not about like winning the argument or scoring points or looking smart on this and that. It's about like bringing people to where like the, the justice is. Absolutely. And actually, you, you, you spurred me to make a point that is important. Um, many people uh, are feeling emotions of embarrassment for what happened to Colin Kaepernick, uh, uh, embarrassment for not taking this on. And I, I think I can uh, be very clear. And I think Martin Luther King said this as well, but people have forgotten. Black people don't want others 
who are not the not being oppressed in this manner to feel guilt. We don't want you to focus on shame. Uh, that doesn't help us. It doesn't help anybody. Uh, people who are focused on that need to get over it. Um, it's not about you. It's really about what is being done to someone else. So we want you to liberate yourself from guilt, from embarrassment, uh, and to really get excited and engaged about changing things to make a better future. Are there some good books that you uh, would recommend folks read um, besides the King's Letter from the Birmingham Jail? Well, there are a number of books on the topic. Actually, one of the things that I would uh, suggest that I haven't gone to it yet, but I know that um, I'm blanking on her name all of a sudden. Um, former um, uh, newscaster on the Today Show um, has a website where she's been recommending books. But one of the books that I really do recommend to people is The New Jim Crow. Um, it, it's really a, it's an eye-opening uh, book to read, uh, and it's the truth. Uh, so uh, I would strongly recommend The New Jim Crow. And for people who want to watch a movie, watch the movie 13. You really should watch the movie 13. Um, those are two fairly easy things. And I, of course, always recommend uh, uh, Martin Luther King's uh, writing, particularly the one, The Letter from Birmingham Jail, that he wrote without access to a library. He wrote it purely based on what was in his head, um, a piece of paper and a pencil in a jail. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. One thing that I just read was uh, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Yes, absolutely fantastic and, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are, but I, one thing I really liked about it is how frank he was about his own journey in figuring this stuff out for himself as uh, a young man and then entering the academy. Like, he, there's a journey here uh, for him and for a lot of people around him. And so I, we're all imperfect people. We're all a work in progress. And I, I really appreciate how um, that... I think that gives people a little more latitude to to think about these things and not worry so much about what you thought or said in the past and think about making it it right today. It's vital that we not get inhibited, not get distracted. Uh, uh, and this is time for for action because it's only through action that we will change 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 the situation and really live up to the great country uh, that we have the potential to be. I think we can do it, Ted. I, uh, I thank you for what you do. Um, thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.